The Abraham Accord was an historic peace agreement in the Middle East between Israel and the United Arab Emirates. President Trump helped bring it together and announced it 10 days ago, in which the United Arab Emirates and Israel would agree to normalize relationships between the countries. Now, now think about that. This is an Arab country normalizing relations with Israel. That is incredible. Only three nations have done that. Three Arab nations have done that. Jordan, uh, or Egypt, excuse me, back in 1979, I think it was, and Jordan in 1994, and now 25 years later, 26 years later, the United Arab Emirates does it. And so, certainly there's some give and take here. The United Arab Emirates, uh, the analysts tell us that, that the biggest thing is there's a strategic advantage for both and technology. And so the United Arab Emirates hope to continue to draw. They've already been buying technology from Israel, but they'd like more in the areas of biotech and healthcare and defense and cyber surveillance. Israel has agreed to stop or suspend annexation in the West Bank for a season. And they are happy to gain an ally only 33 miles removed from Iran and its nuclear program. So there's give and take. And regardless of how it all plays out, any agreement for peace in the Middle East grabs our attention, doesn't it? I mean, that just doesn't happen. And here we have this peace and prosperity agreement, this signing of a covenant between these two nations. It grabs our attention because we know that there will be a peace treaty in the end times between the Antichrist and Israel. And that's what we see today in Daniel chapter 9. If you want to turn with me to Daniel chapter 9, as we look at the end times and we wonder what will take place. When will this peace treaty come about? How will it come about? Well, Daniel wondered the same thing. He studied God's word from the prophet Jeremiah and he looked to the future, and he called out to God in prayer. So he studied God's word. He responded to revelation in prayer, through the practice of prayer. And during that prayer, God sent Gabriel, the angel, to him to come and interpret for him some of the, what he was reading about uh, the end times, and then to give him the last days for Israel and kind of play out Israel's future through the end times. And Daniel had asked for the next 70 years, and uh, God kind of gave him the whole picture as he went way beyond that to the return of Christ. So we're going to look at uh, Daniel 9 today, and as we do that, our eyes will naturally go forward. Uh, Daniel is, is in these chapters 7 through 12 of, uh, of giving us prophecy. He's got four visions, and today is the third one as he extends our outlook, as he causes us to look forward. And, and one of the great things that does is it, it keeps us from being in bondage to our circumstances, in bondage to what is going on in the world today, because we know that there is a future. We've seen that each time, right? God is faithful. He is in control of history. And he is the one who is bringing it all to pass. So we can trust him 
throughout. Well, what we see in verses 1 and 2 is that God's people keep their eyes forward through the study of Scripture. You don't have to be a scholar of God's Word to understand that God's ways are not our ways, and God's thoughts are not our thoughts. In fact, that's what the Isaiah the prophet tells us from the Lord in chapter 55 of his book. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. But he does say in that same passage that his word will not return void. In other words, if we go to the living, authoritative, powerful word of God for teaching and reproof and correction and training and righteousness, it will meet us right where we are. It will go right to our motivations, go right to the heart. And we respond in loving obedience, then... God transforms us into the character of Christ. So how do we gain God's thoughts and how do we learn God's ways? We go to God's word. And that's what Daniel did. We read in, in uh, verses 1 and 2 here that he is studying the prophet Jeremiah. So he's taken this scroll by God's providential design. He pulls down the scroll of Jeremiah. Let's read verses 1 and 2. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of Median descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of the years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jer Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. Daniel's reading this. The scroll of Isaiah, this is what God gave him to read that day. He's studying it, and he comes upon this passage, and he realizes that this is talking about the prophecy regarding the captivity of Israel. And, and so he's getting information about the nation of Israel. And though they are in exile, God has plans for them. The year is 539 B.C. It's the first year of Darius' reign. He's the one that was appointed over the province of Babylon by Cyrus the Persian. We saw him in earlier chapters. This vision takes place about 12 years after the last vision that we saw in Daniel chapter 8. And Daniel himself is closing in on 90 years of age. This long... Uh, career uh, of serving the kings of Babylon. I want you to note two things here. The first one is that Daniel is studying God's word. He's reading God's word, even though he's an extremely high-ranking official, has as much authority as any person other than the king in the kingdom of Babylon, in the province of Babylon. And yet he has made time to read God's word. We already know that he sets aside time to pray three times a day. And here we are seeing him reading God's word, the scroll of Jeremiah, and the prediction that has to do with the length of the captivity of the Jews. I want to go back to the prophet Jeremiah. We're going to put the verses on the screen. And in verse of Jer we don't know if he's in Jeremiah 25 or 29. They both talk about the 70 years. But I want you to notice what he says in 29, verses 10 to 14. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. Speaking of Jerusalem, verse 11, for I know the plans that I have for you declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Everybody knows that verse, right? 
Verse 12, then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. Verse 13 and 14, you will seek me and find me and when you search for me with all your heart and I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and will gather you from all the nations. I will bring you back to the place from where I sent you into exile. So that's as clear as clear it could be, right? He is talking about the exile of the Jews to Babylon from Jerusalem because of their disobedience. And Daniel is reading this. Can you imagine how exciting this must be? Because this is 539. It has been roughly 67 years that they've been in exile. So that's got to get your pulse racing a little bit, right? I mean, it's kind of exciting to realize, hey, we're on the verge of this happening. This is God's word telling us what's going on. So the first thing that we note is that, God is, that Daniel is reading God's word and he understands it. The second thing I want to note is that Daniel believed in the little, literal interpretation of prophecy. He took it to be 70 actual years. And this comes up even in today's uh, critique critics of scripture especially those that don't hold to the supernatural and so they want to use all the numbers in the book of daniel as symbolic and they have all ways of, of defining that but daniel here is actually talking about 70 years and he's excited the 70 years is often observed two different ways daniel looked at it from the time of his deportation in 605 bc and, and the return to come in 536 He knew that the Jews were on the threshold of the fulfillment of this prophecy. There's also a 70-year period between the destruction of the temple in 586 B.C. and the time when it is completed and rebuilt in 515 B.C. Daniel studied God's word, and he's led to the portion, not coincidentally, but by God himself, regarding the return of the Jews to the land which God had given them. And what does he do? Well, he doesn't resign from his position and, and, and start packing. And he doesn't just go out and, and publicly proclaim it and celebrate it. He, he keeps going with God. And the first thing he does is fall to his knees in prayer. His eyes are turned forward now. Indeed, he's just thinking in terms of three years right now. But prophecy is found in the study of God's word, and prophecy always draws our eyes forward to see what God is going to do. In verses 3 through 19, we have this prayer because God's people keep their eyes forward, but through the practice of prayer, through God's word, we learn God's ways and, and God's thoughts, and we align ourselves with his will. We respond to him in, in loving obedience, and when we do, he transforms us through the Holy Spirit into the character of Christ. Through prayer, we align with his will, and we have the opportunity to join him in his work. Now, in God's doing, in God's choosing, he has made prayer a way to accomplish his will in this world. So sometimes he asks us to pray about an issue to have it come to pass. Sometimes the prayers are directed to direct God according to his will. We don't know how it all works, but always prayer can be used by God to draw us in to join him in his work to bring his will to fruition. And that's one of the beautiful things about going to the Lord in prayer. When our eyes are drawn forward to him, we are in prayer and our eyes are locked on him and not on the circumstances around us. 
and we are freed up. We are ready to join him in his work, whatever he has revealed to us, whether it is something as exciting as this prophecy or just the general command to make disciples in our sphere of influence that God has given us as a mission field. So we have prayer. We have God's word. Daniel goes to prayer following the reading of Scripture, and you might ask, why would he go to prayer about this promise when God has just said, this is what I'm going to do? He's made this promise. Why pray about it? Well, I think there might be a couple of reasons. One might be that Daniel might have a, a sense of foreboding here. Because what we read in verses 13 and 14, said, uh, the Lord said, if you seek me with all your heart, you will find me and I will answer you. And I've got a future and a hope for you. And Daniel may have thought, you know, we Jews in Babylon are not seeking the Lord. In fact, there's a lot of my countrymen that would rather prefer to stay here because it's quite comfortable. And so Daniel steps into the gap and he becomes an intercessor, not only for himself, but for his people so that they can seek God, so that they can fulfill his will. I don't think it's any mistake that God had him open the scroll of Jeremiah. Daniel goes to prayer and he claims the promise of restoration on their behalf. I think that's the second reason uh, we know god makes promises but we don't always claim them right some of us live with a great deal of fear and anxiety and weakness and, and those are natural to our broken condition but god has promises for all of those that we don't always claim that we don't always go to him in prayer and, and seek his sustenance and his strength and, and live out of his promises I think Daniel's doing that. He wants to make confession. He wants to claim the promise of God. Well, Daniel's prayer is a model prayer for communicating with God, and we don't have time to look at it uh, all today. So I, I recommend it to you this week as a worthy of your study to, to take a look at the elements that Daniel incorporates as he talks to God. We're going to see the first one is the element of humi humility, and that's just in his demonstration of worship, his physical demonstration. We see this in verse 3 of chapter 9. So I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. The posture of Daniel's body is such that he shows humility, that he goes to God. He's going to God submissively, and he physically demonstrates that in every way possible, that he's mourning for his sins. He's showing solidarity with his people, that he's confessing, that he takes it seriously. He has set aside time, and so we often wonder, does prayer make a difference? Well, yeah, prayer changes things. It changes us. And, and just like Daniel, we've got to be people that are intentional about our prayer. We ought to be people that are willing to change our habits and our routines and our schedules and our priorities and our inward focus so that we give time to the Lord in prayer. Daniel did that despite his high-ranking position, his busyness, if you will. Well, Daniel's humility immediately caused him to give praise to God for who he is, to speak in terms of adoration 
of God. And that's what we see in, in verse 4. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed and said, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. This pulls so many threads from the Old Testament where God has revealed himself. He's using phrases that God has used when he's described himself and revealed himself to different saints throughout the Old Testament. He is praising God for who he is. And so he's just declaring the attributes of God. He's talking about the majesty of God. He's speaking about who God is and that no one else can match him. His attributes set him apart. And perhaps the most important thing here is that, that Daniel makes the prayer God-centered. Notice how he's got plenty of things to ask God, plenty of things that he wants God to do. He's super excited about this return from exile, but he starts by praising God. He wants it to be centered on God. And we're going to see that pattern throughout the prayer. Seeing God for who he is always causes us to see ourselves for what we are, right? Brings up sin when we look at God and his righteousness and his holiness and we become aware of what is going on in our lives. And that's true for Daniel. So he moves from adoration into confession. We see that in verse 5. He says, we have sinned, committed iniquity, acted wickedly, and rebelled, even turning aside from your commandments and ordinances. We go on in the next verse to say, we disregarded your word from the prophets. Daniel is thorough in his confession. And I have to confess, my confessions are not always that thorough. I don't talk about acting wickedly and being rebellious and thoroughly committing iniquity. One of the things that I have learned to do over the years is to name my sins specifically when confessing sin. I find that it gives me assurance that God has forgiven that sin. It also keeps an awareness before me of temptation in that area to sin. Daniel uses several different ways to say that they have sinned. And he doesn't just say, my countrymen have sinned. We Israelites, we Jews. He says, we have sinned. He's identifying with the Israelites here, he is admitting to God that he, along with them, have sinned, has been disobedient. Daniel is interceding for his people. The Israelites have broken God's law. He goes on to say that later in the prayer, Deuteronomy 28. If you obey me, I will bless you. And if you disobey me, I will curse you. And that is what take, has taken place here. And eventually the curse became the 70-year exile. Well, Daniel, from verses 4 through 14, confesses sin. And then in verses 15 to 19, he goes on to make his petition. At this point, he asks of God. He, he makes supplication. The Jews are in need of deliverance. And his eyes are looking forward in prayer to the day that God will restore his people to their land. So Daniel does a couple of things here. He starts his prayer of petition by reminding God of his power and authority and how he delivered 
the Israelites from Egypt. And he's going to come back and say, God, I need you to be true to yourself. Deliver us from bondage and captivity here. And then he's going to talk about the righteousness of God. God, be true to yourself. You were righteous in judging us and sending us into exile. Now be righteous and be true to yourself in keeping to your promises. Keep your promises. And so Daniel holds God to his promise. He actually just says, God, be who you are. Be true to your character. Be righteous. And then we see in verse 19, he finally gets around to actual petition. Oh, Lord, hear. Oh, Lord, forgive. Oh, Lord, listen and take action. For your own sake, oh my God, do not delay, because your city and your people are called by your name. He had stated earlier in this prayer how his, God's people had become a reproach among the nations because of their sinfulness, and they had drugged down the name of God among the, the peoples of the world. So he says here, God, this is for your glory, for your sake. Do it in your timing. Do what you want to do, but please do not delay. Please restore your people. He responded to Revelation with prayer. We would do well to respond to Revelation with the practice of prayer. As I said, it, it, it gets our mind off of our circumstances and, and going deeper into those with discouragement and even despair. And it keeps our eyes on God who is in control. A God who has made promises for our lives as God who is at work in us and has promised to complete that work. The question could be raised here, did Daniel assume God would bring the glorious restoration of the kingdom to Israel at this time? Do you think it ran through his mind that this return to Jerusalem, the rebuilding of the temple, would this restore the glory of the kingdom of God would Messiah come? I think it's a fair question to ask because even when we get to the New Testament and, and Jesus is talking about the kingdom, the disciples are just clueless. Even after three and a half years, it's really not until after the resurrection and the Holy Spirit comes that they begin to understand what Jesus had told them about the kingdom. Well, the father is going to send Gabriel, the angel, to interpret the vision, to explain what he calls 70 weeks. And Daniel's going to learn, if he was thinking about the kingdom, that that must wait. And how long must it wait? Well, God gives a little calendar of his plan here in verses, actually verses 24 to 27, but in 20 to 27, we see God's people keep their eyes forward through trusting him today. Prophecy reminds us that God is in control, so we can trust him today. And prophecy reminds us that despite our times, God's word is true, and we are to carry on about the king's business. We can trust him today. Well, Gabriel is sent by God verses 20 to 23, and he, he comes to Daniel while Daniel is in the midst of praying, and he's going to speak to Daniel and give Daniel God's word. 
give him this third vision, if you will. And this prophecy is going to make it apparent that God is not yet done with the nation of Israel. That this return to Jerusalem is not all there is. And in the final verses of, of Daniel, or uh, yeah, four verses of Daniel 9, we get one of the most important prophecies in Scripture, especially regarding Israel and the end times and God's plans and God's timing. So here's a broad overview of these uh, final four verses. Daniel asks for a small thing. He wants to know about 70 years, and God is going to tell him about 70 weeks or 70 times seven years, 490 years in terms of restoring Israel with the kingdom. God's answer to, through Gabriel is massive. So God answers to Daniel, here's what's got to take place before Israel is restored. Israel's rest will not be complete for another 490 years. Specifically, as you see on the left, there will be 49 years of rebuilding Jerusalem. That is seven weeks. And then there are 62 weeks, 434 years of continuing on until Christ will be crucified. Jerusalem is rebuilt. And essentially at the end of that 62 weeks is the end of the Old Testament. Sometime after that, Jerusalem will be sacked and the temple destroyed. And then at some future point, so that's when we have this gap in the middle with the cross, verse 26 of Daniel 9. And then we have the final week the 70th week, this final seven years in verse 27. And that's when the Antichrist will make a seven-year treaty of peace and prosperity with Israel. And halfway through, he will claim to be God. He will be the abomination of desolation. He will usher in the great tribulation. And in the end, he will be destroyed. The second coming of Christ will wipe him out. And Israel will enjoy a period of unprecedented blessing in the presence of Christ. So that is a snapshot of the 70 weeks. Now, Daniel kind of lays it out in verses 24 to 27. So in 24, we read this. 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city. And so what he is saying there is this prophecy has to do with the Jews and the Jews alone, the Israelites to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make an atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Daniel says 70 weeks. It's not going to be 70 years. It's going to be 70 times 7 or 490 years, and that's the time that God will use to fulfill all of his promise, uh, promises and purposes regarding the nation of Israel. Gabriel says 70 weeks. The Hebrew literally reads 70 sevens. And biblical scholars, even since ancient times, have taken this to be years. Uh, that uh, each week 
is made up of years and not of days because nothing else fits the context. 490 days and 490 months would be way too short to accomplish what is taking place here. There are six important goals that are given in 24 there. And the first three have to do with the plan of redemption fulfilled at the first coming of Christ to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity. The last three having to do with his second advent, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, that all prophecy would be ended by fulfillment at that time, and to anoint the most holy place, the temple, that will be rebuilt. First three relate to the first coming of Christ. The second three relate to the second advent of Christ. I find it extremely exciting that God reveals such details of the end times. And then in the next verse, he answers the, the question, when will this 70 weeks begin? Well, the 70 weeks is going to start with the issuing of a decree. We read this in verse 25. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a, de a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. He answers the question, the issuing of a decree. This decree is the decree of Artaxerxes. There were four, at least four decrees that we see in Scripture. But the one that talks most directly to rebuilding and restoring Jerusalem is the, the decree of Artaxerxes in 444 B.C. We see that in Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 to 8. That's the beginning point of the 70 weeks. How will the 70 weeks be divided up? Again, back to the chart. They're divided into three sections. There are seven weeks and 62 weeks over there on the left. 69 weeks. And they make up uh, 483 years. Then there's a gap of time. And then there are 490 years. The total is 490. What takes place in each segment? Well, in the first period of 49 years, Jerusalem is rebuilt. And we know that the walls were rebuilt by Nehemiah in only 52 days. But evidently by the time they cleared out all the rubble and rebuilt uh, the homes and everything inside, it was 49 years. Again, bringing us to about the end of the Old Testament, around 400 B.C., 395. The next 434 years take us to the time of the ministry of Christ. This 62 weeks. This takes us up to the time of Messiah the Prince. And the Messiah Prince is Jesus Christ here. There is another prince referred to in these verses with a little p, and that is Antichrist. This Messiah Prince is Jesus Christ, God the Son incarnate. And Harold Honer, in his book, Chronological Aspects of the Life of Christ, went back and, and, and did some work that people had done throughout the centuries uh, on looking at this timing. And he says that the decree was given on March 5th, 444 B.C. That's pretty well given by historians. He says, after you make appropriate adjustments in moving from a Persian calendar to a Jewish lunar calendar, 360 days, to the Julian calendar we use today, the end result is that the 69th week ends precisely on March 30th, A.D. 33, the day of the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. And even if you dispute these dates, since we're dealing with ancient history, 
we know that the 69 weeks end during the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. I think it's fair to say during on the, the day of the triumphal entry. And that's pretty exciting when you think until the Messiah Prince and when he's presented to the nation before he's completely rejected. In the first phrase of the next verse, we learn of the crucifixion of Jesus. Verse 26, then after 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. We looked at that during our time of communion. That speaks of his death on the cross as a sinless sacrifice. When Christ was crucified, he had nothing. But he died, not just his own death, but he died for the sins of others, delivering us from bondage to sin, dying a death that had to be died, that had to be done. It was essential for all mankind. Jesus Christ was cut off. The rest of the verse talks about the sacking of Jerusalem and destruction of the temple. So you are to know and to discern from the issuing of a decree, excuse me, uh, then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And so we take that as the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in A.D. 70 by the Romans, the people of the prince. If you remember, as we've looked at these prophecies, the Antichrist comes out of the revived Roman Empire. That's an empire that never ended, was never conquered uh, completely and, and um, substituted by a new empire. And, and so the people of the prince are the Romans who came in under Titus and destroyed Jerusalem in A.D. 70. That's how we look at that. And its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. So now we're looking at that gap of time, uh, what we call the church age now, the time from the crucifixion until what I call, or what we would call the rapture from Scripture, New Testament, when Christ will return uh, for his people, for the church, uh, all believers who have placed their faith in him during this time frame. And so... During that time frame, we're told there will be wars. There will be desolations that are determined. And so what we see is the restless nature of the world in which we live. That it comes as no surprise that things are so chaotic. In a world that has desolations determined by God, that is filled with chaos until the return of Christ to destroy all evil. The prince who is to come is the Antichrist here. He will arise out of the revived Roman Empire. We saw him in Daniel 7 and Daniel 8 as the little horn and the small horn. And then in 2 Thessalonians 2 and Revelation 13, he is the beast. He is the one who is the false Christ of Satan. He is both against Christ and in the place of Christ. And then verse 27, we, we get the answer to the question, what happens in that 70th week as we're moving across the chart left to right? Verse 27, and he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week, speaking of the Antichrist. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come Who, the one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Uh, 
So far, we've accounted for 69 of the 70 weeks, and we see the 70th week here in verse 27. It's the week when the Antichrist will confirm a covenant. He will have a peace treaty with Israel to start it. Three and a half years later, he will announce that he is God. He is the one who is to be worshipped with the mark of the beast. He is the abomination of the desolation that Jesus refers to in Matthew 24:15 when he speaks of this prophecy of Daniel. He will have deceived the, the Israelites and set himself up. He will put his own image in the temple and desecrate it. And he will rule with great power. The one who is supposedly the protector of the Jews will become the greatest persecutor of the Jews. And that will go on for three and a half years until Jesus returns at the second coming. And he destroys the Antichrist, the one who is made desolate in verse 27. He destroys all evil and crushes his enemies. Final period, seven years, is dominated by the Antichrist, who becomes Israel's protector, then persecutor until he is stopped by Christ. When we consider prophecy, it should cause us to trust God. Last week, we talked about just even by looking at his faithfulness through the years of what he is doing and how all of these prophecies are coming true in, in the ways that we can see and anticipate should keep our eyes looking forward to the future, to the end times, to the last days. And eyes forward should give us the ability to navigate life in these difficult times. So in conclusion, as you keep your eyes forward, what will you see? Well, you see the truthfulness of God's word, right? You see the difficulties of our lives, that there are wars and that there are desolations decreed. the unsettled nature of our world. We see that God's judgment will come and it will be complete. We see God's plan for the ages here in Daniel 9, specifically for Israel. We, of course, know from the New Testament that we are to live with our eyes forward by discipling, making disciples of the nations, starting with our sphere of influence with the people right around us where God has placed us. And we also see the need to know Jesus personally. Prophecy includes three deliverances here. We see Daniel looking for restoration to Jerusalem. We see God's concern with the deliverance from sin and then the, the final oppression wiped out and all the Jews restored to their land with the kingdom in end times. But the one that most concerns you and I right now personally is the deliverance from sin. And so I want to ask you, are you prepared for judgment? Are you prepared for the return of Christ? Have you placed your faith in Jesus Christ as Savior? We celebrated the fact that he went to the cross earlier and died for your sin in your place. Have you made that personal? Have you trusted him? Have you said, yes, Lord, I receive your salvation. I believe that you are God the Son, that you died on the cross for my sin in my place was buried and rose again. When you make that commitment of your life to Christ, your sins are forgiven. All guilt and shame is removed and you receive the free gift of eternal life. That means Jesus comes to enter your life to lead you and to guide you. And that is the simplicity of the gospel. That is the grace of God. Jesus did all the work. You only need to receive it. And I invite you to do that right now 
just in the silence of your own heart to take life seriously. This world is not getting better. We're not on this trajectory where everything ends up beautiful. You can just look at the news every day. But you can know beauty and majesty through Jesus Christ by trusting him right now. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for this opportunity to look at your word. And I thank